Welcome everyone to the Design 101 podcast. My name is Amanda Gates and I own Gates Interior Design in Nashville, Tennessee. My company specializes in living a stylish and holistic life. My goal with this podcast is to celebrate all the blessings that we receive from a well-designed life. I hope to introduce you to inspirational people, teach you new ways to live better, and empower you to design your best life through intention. There are many ways to achieve balance and harmony in our lives, but it all starts at home. Join me each month to be inspired, transformed, and motivated to live your best life. Hello, hello everyone. Welcome to Design 101. I'm your host Amanda and today's guest is Chris Sacco, Director of Operations and one of the co-founders of Groundswell International. In August of 2009, 12 people from eight countries gathered at Overlook Farm in Rutland, Massachusetts to create Groundswell International, a global partnership to contribute to this new agroecological farming movement that is basically bottom-up solutions. They are a partnership of local civil society organizations, NGOs, and people grounded in diverse contexts and experiences to share a common approach to supporting social change. Groundswell founders and partners have worked for decades to enable thousands of rural communities and organizations in many countries to sustainably improve their lives through better farming practices. They have been at the leading edge of developing methods to spread agro-ecological farming practices, farmer innovation, farmer-to-farmer extension, community health, and strengthening local organizations to lead their own developmental processes. Our global agricultural and food system is broken and it needs to transition to one that is more sustainable and beneficial to the world's population. This must happen in the face of the linked challenges of climate change, natural resource depletion, and worldwide economic and social upheaval. Join me as I sit down with Chris today to find out about this grassroots movement to farming, how they are creating local and global change, and ways that you can pitch in to create change. All right, Chris, welcome to the show. Thank you. I'm happy to be here. Awesome. I'm so excited to have you on. So um, I was just telling you before the podcast that I really don't know a whole lot about Groundswell. Um, give us a little bit of background. How did it get started and what is it? Sure. Um, well, our mission is uh, to build healthy food and farming from the ground up. That's, our, that's, that's what we set out to do. And we started about five years ago, um, a group of 12 of us, including uh, I, me. I was one of the co-founders. We got together, having worked with a bunch of different organizations, um, working in sustainable development and agriculture, around the world, we all got together to try to do something a little bit different. Um, something focusing really on people-centered, grounded, um, long-term or sustainable development. So that, that was the, no one quite does it like us. So, you know, or the way we, we, we are doing it now. So, um, yeah, we, we all, we came from different places and, and, and created this thing together. And how did you, uh, I did a little bit of research on your website, and it said that you guys came together around um, 2009, middle of 2009. How did you guys come about in in bringing this together? Like, did you see a problem and kind of gather together and say, "Here's a solution," or how did it all kind of come together for you? Yeah, well, 
One of the important um, parts of our birth story is that many of the founders are actually citizens of developing countries and were, you know, grew up in, in villages um, and then dedicated their lives to improving the lives of their, their compatriots. So individually wasn't responding to the needs of the people, but rather was bringing external solutions and sort of pushing them on the people, if you know what I mean. So our whole, we call it people-centered development because we, you know, the whole process is seeking to find out what people's priority needs are and then work with them to develop solutions um, or find solutions that they've already developed and and scale those out. So it's really, that's why we call it people-centered. Um, and that's really the key to making it work and not only making it work in individual villages and families, but also for it to be scalable because when people are creating their own solutions, um, they're relying on, they're doing it in the context of the problem and they're also using inputs, um, and know-how that, that already exists to them. So you, you're not recreating, um, you know, you're not bringing in something from the outside that they're not familiar with. I don't know if that makes sense to you. Yeah, and so what exactly is Groundswell doing? Are they basically bringing the education to these farming areas to help them learn better practices, or, or what is Groundswell doing? Okay, so I think there's we describe it, and it's a little bit different in every in every country, and in, even within a country, in in every uh, village, it's slightly different. But the the core of Groundswell's work and in, in the, the many partners that we work with on the ground is developing processes that, are, that essentially allow people to become the, the architects of their own lives, of their own development. So what that means is often in rural areas or in the, in the very marginalized places where we work, people do not, there's, there's not a, a solid community organization or organization that people can get together to work under to solve their problems. So a lot of the work that we do initially is creating different levels of organization, uh, organizing essentially people um, to work on the, their own, their problems, their shared problems. So we do a lot of work about organizing and building democratic institutions. Um, and that's the foundation for everything else we do. And then typically the folks who we're working with are uh, farmers. So the, their immediate livelihood concern is, uh, you know, is, is improving their farming practices. And so we work with them. They're already farmers. They know, they know, they have a basis in, in, uh, in different techniques. We work with them to test new techniques, agroecological techniques that not only improve their production, uh, but also help restore and regenerate the areas they're living in or the villages and, and, the, and the landscapes. So that's the livelihoods piece. And then, you know, there's always, there's other concerns that people have. It's not just, it's not just good enough to, to, you know, have a, uh, improve your income and improve the amount of food you have available. So, when other things come up, because it, the process is led by people um, and, and we're not imposing something from the outside, we address whatever other concerns might come up. It may be health concerns. They may need, um, you know, water and sanitation, uh, such as latrines or, you know, improving hygiene practices like in Haiti because of the cholera epidemic. Or it could be, um, you know, it could be that there's um, uh, another example of something that, you know, it's not everywhere, but it's is the um, family planning 
uh, might be an issue that, that they've identified and they want to work on. So we could we could work on other health, you know, family planning or health concerns if they come up. And you mentioned earlier that Groundswell is different in your approach to setting up these so-called democratic societies. So how do you how how is your approach different? I think the easiest way to explain uh, Groundswell is through the one of our partner programs, um, which is in Haiti, I think is one of the best examples of how Groundswell really excels. Uh, so maybe I can just describe that for you. Sure. Okay. In Haiti, we work with an organization called Partnership for Local Development. And the founder of, of PDL, um, it's the acronym for, for Partnership for Local Development, is a Haitian agronomist, uh, Cantav Jean-Baptiste. And Cantav has been you know, Cantab has been, he and his, his actually his brother, uh, Siobhan Jean-Baptiste, uh, are two of the most successful peasant organizers in Haiti. Um, they work with hundreds of thousands of people across the, uh, across the country there. So the ingenious or the genius of Cantav um, and Siobhan has been to, is their way of organizing Haitians, uh, rural Haitian people. So they, you know, it's a, it's a. They start with very small groups called um, groupement, and they, that means uh, it's like a solidarity group of six to to fifteen people typically, and uh, they'll work with those people to address some very small, easily achievable success, uh, maybe latrines, for example, and those people will you know they'll work with with PDL uh, in Cantab's group for. For a couple of months, and something they can achieve, like it, like building latrines at their homes, and then very quickly after they have that initial success, they want to take on a bigger project. So they 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 may uh, do something else in their small group mon, or they may decide to work with other group mon, other solidarity group that are close by to take on something bigger, like maybe improving a road. So they'll work. So two or three group mon, or maybe five even, will get together and they'll take on a bigger project. And then, you know, in time, this, this may go on, the Groupmon and, the, and the, now the, the, group, the network of Groupmon called a block will start to work together to tackle bigger projects. This may take, you know, this whole, this whole, these, these projects may be going on for a year, year and a half, and it's not long, almost spontaneously, these blocks of Groupmon will get together to form a peasant organization because they understand that together, all of them can even do, achieve even bigger things. So they'll start working together at the, at the level of a community or a neighborhood. Um, so once that whole infrastructure is in place and, and throughout that whole process, uh, the, the, the members of, these, of, the, of the group MON and the blocks and, the, and, the, and eventually the, the, this peasant organization are uh, receiving training from PDL and, from, and supported by Groundswell. And that training, again, would be in not only organizing themselves, in creating leaders, but in sustainable agriculture, agroecological techniques, and health, community health, and and whatnot. So that's a. And I would think that building these societies would really help build confidence within the community as well. Absolutely, that's the whole. I mean, our focus on achieving some an early success is exactly that. By doing by tackling a like a small priority problem like building a latrine, um, and and really. When, when I'm saying building a latrine, it's not like we come in and give them materials uh, and they build a latrine. They're organized. Their little group of, of their solidarity group is going out and finding like the vast majority of the resources to build these latrines. And that 
you know, we're learning by doing, or they're learning by doing, um, with just a little bit of support from us. And we're providing really key inputs into that process. So they really build a lot of confidence during that, during that whole, um, uh, during the whole process, right? And as they link with these other group, the other little solidarity groups, um, and the, and the, and the a number of people involved grows, uh, and they tackle even bigger things, they start to understand, and that's why we say they, they really do become um, the architects of their own development process because they're really they're doing it all. We're just supporting it uh, with key inputs and key uh, know-how at different points. And kind of giving them the structure to yeah, do Yeah, but, you know, quick, in Haiti, again, with this, I just described very, very quickly a, a very complex uh, process. But really, after about six years... The Group Mon and the Bloc and the, and the peasant organizations, they're, after a six-year process, they're essentially independent, right? They can, they can take out this process forward on their own without us. And that's the key. How awesome, though. Yeah. I mean, what a, again, going back to the confidence, I mean, that just um, really must boost the integrity of the community and how they feel about themselves. And, I mean, independence is, is such a great booster for um, a neighborhood, a community, and building a society. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, and they never lose. Another interesting thing about uh, about the, the Haitian example that I just provided is the group Mon, that solidarity group, never loses its identity. Right. So, as a as a as a governing structure, they always have their own identity. And, and that group Mon solidarity group is represented at the block level, which is the level up. And then that block has elects a leader or elects a representative to represent it at the peasant organization level. And then I haven't mentioned these yet, but of the 20 peasant organizations that we work with in Haiti, so you have a network, two networks actually that we've, uh, with PDL helped create that bring all these people together. So at this point we're talking about, you know, hundreds and hundreds of these solidarity groups, dozens or actually probably close to 120, uh, uh, blocks and then 20 peasant organizations, then two regional networks, which cover a huge swath of the Haitian countryside, representing in total almost a quarter of a million people. Wow. So you guys have now been in operation for roughly five years. Um, as I've done interviews over the years and I've, I've um, spoken with other organizations that have started out, they have kind of an overall vision of what they or what their expectations are. And, you know, as they get going and, and learn new tactics and, and see what works and what doesn't work, the mission kind of changes. How has Groundswell um, evolved, so to speak, over the last five years in building these communities? Yeah, you know, it's, again, it's, it's been, it has been a learning process, although we, we do collectively, all the co-founders and all the people involved in the Groundswell partnership, um, you know, we have hundreds and hundreds of years of experience together, but the the biggest learning is and the thing we're really trying to i guess shift is how do you scale this work right because we can do something at, in Haiti or Ecuador or Ghana and if we're affecting even if it's a few hundred thousand people in some country that's not enough right i mean the earth has we have serious challenges ahead of us and if we're to really affect any meaningful change we need to figure out ways to scale up and relatively quickly so we can reach millions and millions of people. So 
what we've learned, I think, over the last five years is that we're never, you know, as a small nonprofit going to, through our partners and our staff, be able to reach enough people to achieve the level of impact that I'm describing. So we are focusing now on doing good work with our local partner organizations, but also reaching out to other networks and other organizations who have a broad reach of their own so that we can influence them and learn from each other to spread this very effective approach that we use, essentially. And in that way, scale out you know, people-centered development. And how do you choose the areas that you go into to create these structures, and, and how do you pick the villages? Well, that's actually a very interesting question because they essentially pick themselves, and that's, that's another really key part of the approach. It wouldn't work if we went out to a rural village and said, we want to help you. The reason this, this approach works, or our approach works, is because they've essentially seen the work that Groundswell and its partners are doing succeeding in some part, uh, you know, in, in a nearby village. Um, or maybe it's, maybe it starts with a, you know, a neighbor sees that the family, uh, you know, next door, a couple miles away is, is, you know, they're, they've got this nice verdant, you know, landscape around them. And so they want to understand why is that happening? So they usually, this will spread, uh, the knowledge of Groundswell and his partners will spread sort of spontaneously. And then those people uh, will organize, you know, a group of, a small group of people will come and approach one of our partners and say, you know, we want to do what they did over there. And that's, that's, and once they've come to us and said, you know, we're interested in being part of this, essentially, then that, that starts a, a feeling out process where our partner organizations will very, very slowly open a dialogue with these groups uh, of people and and then they get into, again, organizing them to for a quick success so that they start to build confidence. And you can see how um, how that works so much better because they're already interested. They've already bought in because they've seen it working somewhere else. And they come to us and they're ready to go. And they, they really want to be involved and they're, they're interested in, in, in helping themselves already. Yeah, I would see where that would make a big Huge difference. difference because yeah. if they didn't want to, <laughs> they're not going to listen. Well, it's like to everything, you. right? I mean, that's that's one of our biggest. I think that's one of the keys to our approach, and uh, you know why it's so successful, because people are motivated. Um, and, and, and again, there's two. There's multiple reasons why it works so well, but one is that you know we're not forcing it on people. We're not saying you know it's not some big government program, um, you know, supported by USAID or someone who's saying you need to work in this area. So go find beneficiaries. You know, that's not how it works. These people are self-selecting um, and they're self-selecting based on, you know, having seen that the our work succeed somewhere. So they know it can work. They already know before they start, they, they already have the idea that this will work. You know, this can work. Um, and, and, and then they're bought in, you know, and then this the whole the first few months of us of us dialoguing with a new a group of people or a village or neighborhood um, is really about coming to an understanding and, and letting them know that, you know, we're not here to do this for you. We're, we're, we're here to support you. And, and really very quickly, we want you to drive this process. We, we're not in the driver's seat. It's, it's your life. 
Yeah, it reminds me of that saying, you know, give a man a fish and he'll eat for a day, but teach him how to fish and he'll eat for a life. Yeah, that's really the essence of it. I mean, that's, um, that is very much the essence of, of what, we're, what we're about. It's about, you know, building people's, I, I always say, you know, people becoming the masters of their own destiny or the architects of their own lives or any way you want to put it, but it's really about that. Put that, you know, give them, give them the capacities and skills that they need, um, help them to do really find those because they already have them, most of them, right? We're just tweaking things here and there. I mean, you know, people don't give uh, farmers, rural farmer, you know, rural people and, and peasant farmers enough credit. I mean, they're very, um, they're very innovative folks if they just given this space and opportunity to, to demonstrate that. Well, and that's one of the things that it says on your website is that um, their system is broken. What do you feel is, you know, obviously they're thriving once they have the education of the structure, but, but what parts are broken and, and how do you kind of fill in the, the holes to make it work more effectively for them? Yeah, I think the language you're referencing on our website, I mean, they're really talking, we, when we talk about the system is broken, um, we're talking about the global food system. And, but it, obviously that the, the food systems, and, and the reason, again, we're focusing on on food and agriculture is because we we work primarily or really exclusively in rural areas. And so that is people's, you know, farming is the main livelihood activity and really what they, they everyone is engaged in um, the vast majority of the time. So the food system, uh, you know, not just in developing countries, but here also has serious challenges. Um, everywhere from, you know, there's, there's all sorts of, uh, there's, there's, poverty issues and there's sovereignty issues and there's um, resource depletion or environmental issues that we're, we're grappling with in all those places. And so all part of the brokenness is, are all those things. So when I mean scarcity of resources, economic resources, I'm talking about the poverty, right? So people don't have an, what they need uh, or, or knowledge, right, to, um, to farm effectively. So that's one way. And then the depleted resource base or the environmental problems is for different, it very, can be very, it, it differs by country, right, in context. But they're, they're up against, not only do they not have the external resources they need, but the, the natural resources in the places where they're trying to farm are under enormous stress because of population issues, because of, you know, maybe inappropriate past farming practices um, or different things. And then typically they're not getting a lot of outside support from the governments. They're very much on their own. Um, so, and then I would say even worse is when they do have support from their governments, often, and this happens in the U.S. too, the governments are pushing things that are not necessarily appropriate for those people. For example, in many places where we work, the government extension services push seed, hybrid seed or genetically modified mm, seed on people. Yeah. Why is that a problem? I mean, there's not only is it because the crops that they're growing aren't necessarily good for us. Again, there's there's evidence they're not. Some people say there's not enough evidence yet, but there's quite a bit of evidence out there that suggests that GMO foods um, are not uh, good for us. But worse, I think, is that a lot of these places there are there are seed systems in place whereby for hundreds or maybe thousands of years, people have grown their crops and saved a portion of those crops 
to see the next year's agricultural cycle. Which is a beautiful cycle and system. It is. And so when you take that away, for, and it often happens in, in a crisis, right? So there'll be a, a natural disaster or something. And instead of trying to get people, you know, restoring that, that cycle by getting locally produced you know, seed from farmers maybe that, who were not affected, what will happen is the government usually with, you know, funding from outside, either the, you know, the Inter-American, uh, the, sorry, the um, uh, World Bank or USAID or some other government agency will, will come in with resources and say, well, here, here are these seeds that you can you know, replant with. And the minute you do that, you know, you've essentially you've killed the cycle. You've taken, it, now they've got hybrid GMO seeds and they plant those and, 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 and if, they're, if they're GMO, often they have a termi- terminator gene and they can't be harvested for next year's seed. So that family who was independent for the food production is now dependent on the system. They got to buy seed every year. I'm sorry, but that's just another, that's one really concrete example of the broken system we're talking about. Well, and that is a great example because when you're dealing with um, especially third world countries and areas that don't have the resources to continually buy those seeds, it is a broken system because they're relying on something that wasn't created by God. I mean, we're talking about something that was created 20 years ago and it is a profit system. Yeah, exactly. Well, that, so, it's the antithesis. I mean, I like that example actually because it's the antithesis of what we're trying to do. We're trying to empower people and allow them to, you know, take control of their lives, um, give them a voice in shaping their future, that sort of thing. And this GMO seed example is a perfect counterexample to what we're trying to do. I mean, the, you know, the, the multinationals, uh, seed corporations, and you know, food corporations, industrial agriculture, are pushing this and they're essentially enslaving, um, at least in, in one respect, enslaving farmers, right? They're, they're forcing them into the, into the international food system. Well, and they're making them believe that, you know, that these modified seeds are good for us and that because of the fertilizers that are built in, it's going to prevent certain things and it's nothing to be fearful of when in actuality, um, you know, if God wanted it to be created that way, he would have. You know, we've had this system for thousands of years that works, so why screw exactly. it? Exactly. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, and, people, and I'm just talking one aspect. We're talking about the GMO seed. But, yeah, when you throw in, you know, the GMO seed is supposed to work with certain herbicides and pesticides and, you know, and then they, the fertilizers. I mean, what these, what ultimately they try to do is they try to get farmers hooked on external inputs that they need to buy. They try to get them hooked, and this happens all over the world. It's been happening for the last, you know, really intensely for the last 60 years. They try to get all these, there's, there's, you know, billions of family farmers around the world. It's a gigantic market, essentially, for industrial agriculture. And they, you know, this, between the seeds and the fertilizers, the herbicides and the pesticides, you know, they get these people hooked on, on these external inputs that they got to buy all the time. And they don't really, you know, most of these folks, folks I'm talking about are subsistence farmers and they really don't have the resources. So by like, as you suggested, uh, you know, when, once they're, they're on, um, that, that causes all sorts of other problems for them because now they've got a, they have a capital outlay every agricultural season, which they usually, you know, or maybe if they have a bad year, the previous year, or bad harvest next year, they, they're this new system that they're engaged in, requires that they have a capital outlay that they can't come up with. So they borrow money, right? And they borrow money. A lot of farmers are in debt. Yeah, well, they borrow money to pay for the the fertilizers and the seeds and the herbicides, 
right, in the, in the pesticides, and then they they borrow money that at a very high interest rate, usually from you know like a loan shark essentially, um, and they get in this cycle of indebtedness, and often you know that's the reason why they lose their land or they have to move to a city. Um, so they you know you can see where how this this whole yeah, how it's, it's really all connected. A lot of these development issues all really do go back to agriculture and rural people. Um, the urbanization of the world, really, this is one of the driving forces behind it, which is a whole other <laughs> issue. But, you know, the loss of, you know, land grabbing and the, and the, law, and the indebtedness and, and all these sorts of things that are forcing rural people to give up their rural livelihoods and forcing them into urban areas, you know, it's all tied together. Well, in farming... And agriculture is at the core of a thriving economy. We don't need iPads or more clothes. I mean, we need food. Yeah. So to educate and to teach people how to produce a sustainable lifestyle, which most of us don't do anymore. In the last 100 years, a lot of people have turned into urbanites and and don't farm. Um, You know, I mean, this really is getting... uh, to a solution and, and getting to the root of the problem. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So I want to, we just before the, the podcast started, we were talking about how I came to know about uh, Grounds Well. Um, I bought a kombucha that day and it well, there was a, um, like a uh, card around the bottle and that's when I started my process. It was about six months ago in educating myself about what Grounds Well was and I got my seed packet think it's for basil um, yeah. which I love basil I grow it every right. year so tell us about that program and and what that really did for getting the groundswell name and awareness out there yeah so you know we've we've really um, been fortunate to work with Bucci uh, and Bucci by the way it's located in Asheville North Carolina um, it was started by that's an interesting story in and of itself it's it's very much the sort of um, people we like to associate with it's a it's it's um, two moms who started a, uh, this little kombucha company, um, essentially in their kitchens. About uh, I don't know how many years ago, but not not all that long ago, and had had wonderful success. And now they're uh, in in Whole Foods around the country. Um, so anyway, so they they approached us about participating. You know, every every year they partner with a few different nonprofits to. Um, on one of their on their intentional line, which is um, they put out different flavors of kombucha all the time, and they have one line, uh, intentional line, they refer to it as, and, and they had one called Seed. So Bucci, they had found out about uh, our work with um, seed producers and um, seed banks in, in in Haiti and in Ecuador and other places, and they thought that it would be an interesting partnership for them uh, when they they came out with a new flavor called Seed. So. We did indeed partner, and, and now that the, the money that uh, a portion of the proceeds from the sales of those uh, kombuchas, the seed flavor, is going to support Groundswell's work. That's awesome. Yeah. A lot of what Groundswell does is in third world countries and, and works with um, you know low level or, or low income societies. Do you do any work in the U.S. or or in our area, or is it all predominantly in third world countries? Actually, you know, the money from the the Bucci um, uh, partnership is going to support our U.S. program, which we're launching next year, early next year. 
we, we believe, and I particularly believe, that in order to address these global problems, you know, we, we do need to work here. There's a lot of work to be done in the United States, um, particularly in Appalachia, where, you know, where, we're, where our, our office is. Um, you know, our program is focusing on, you know, it's, the name of the program is, uh, well, at this point, anyway, it's still, it's still sort of a draft, but growing food where children live. Right. I mean, we really there's there's a huge problem with um, with uh, food. I mean, you know, we we throw out, you know, a gigantic percentage of the food that we produce every year in this country. And but yet there's there's, you know, tens of millions of people in in many millions of children who do not have enough food to eat. Um, And so we're really uh, the focus of our U.S. work is going to be working with immigrant children and also just generally resource poor families in our area to help them grow some of their own food to supplement their um, their diets. I agree with that. I think that our food system here is very broken. Um, it just sickens me that we have products like GMOs, which is making large corporations more profitable um, for the health or, or the sake of our health. Um, and like my husband and I, we volunteered over the weekend with a local charity that feeds local people in our county, um, which is considered a wealthier, uh, county in my area. We had over 300 people show up for free groceries because they can't, they don't have enough money to, to buy their own groceries. Yeah, no, it's incredible, right? I mean, in this country, we, we spend hundreds of billions of dollars on God knows what, and we, and we can't feed our own people. Yeah, and I, I think what's so interesting is that um, we had a, a council meeting in my neighborhood. We've been trying to raise funds for um, getting leftovers like from the grocery stores for things that they throw away and whatnot and how to get things at a, a cheaper rate. But what I found so interesting was that a lot of these children, one, they have no idea where our food comes from, and they think that a lot of our food comes out of a box. Mm-hmm. So we've started some community gardens so that children can get involved in in seeing how their food is grown. And the most beautiful thing happens because they get this pride of ownership. Like when they grow a tomato, they're not willing to go to the grocery store and eat one from there, you know, that their mom bought. But if they grow one because they cared and tended to it, they're willing to eat that. Absolutely. I mean, there's lots of great examples. I think, you know, I think community and school gardens are wonderful things. I think kitchen gardens are wonderful things. And any way we can get people to reconnect with their food, you know, and their, and, and, and help become part of our food system. I mean, you know, I think part of the, you know, ensuring that, or really our democracy is part of it is ensuring our food sovereignty. I mean, I, that's, those two things for me, and not just me, I mean, they've, you know, been connected for, for ages, have, um, you know, Thomas Jefferson has talked about that in, in, in great length, actually, that when, you know, like, I'm going to butcher the quote, but something like, you know, when, when the majority of the, of the country uh, no longer farms, democracy will die. I mean, that's, that's, I'm not even paraphrasing it well, but you get the idea. I mean, there's, when people stop being connected to their food system and they don't have the independence that comes from producing their own food, um, it really puts, uh, I think it puts the whole system in peril. Yeah, I agree with that because it, it, everything in our economy, everything thrives off of agriculture. Yeah. 
so many hands are involved and so many jobs are available through agriculture and these large corporations are stomping all over that system that's worked for thousands of years. Yeah. And think about, I mean, how much, uh, if we, you know, I think somewhere at one point it was 25% of our, of of the American people were engaged in agriculture at some level, right? At the turn of the century, 1900. Today it's less than 2%. Hmm. And that's just, that's an incredible statistic. And, you know, that's, I think that that is, is largely why the food system is the way it is right now. People just don't get it. Well, and that's one of the things that I loved about Groundswell is that, um, I, you know, I didn't know how involved um, the the program was in, in really teaching from the ground up, literally. Um, but just the fact that you teamed up um, with Bucha to get the, the seed information out there, I thought what a great way to really bring awareness to seed saving and to buy clean seeds. Absolutely. And you know, that alone, the other partner in that whole, in that partnership is so true. Um, so true seed is a local seed company. It's literally, you know, two blocks down from where my office is. And we've done, we've been partnering with, even before we started partnering with Bucci, um, we've been working with them. So the seed packet you got, um, you received with that mailing was from, um, that was seed that's local. That's seed that was produced, uh, packaged by So True, uh, and they're a great little company. The, the, the founder and the owners of that company um, are, are all about seed sovereignty and, and, and trying to fix our system. And I think they're doing a fantastic job. And, and really, they've created because of of So True Seed. There's a there's a lot of people around. Asheville and in, in the county where we live that are now growing seed, you know, not just growing crops and, and things for farmers market, but they're growing seed that then so true is buying. So they're really recreating a seed system in this part of the country, which is great. Awesome. I love that. Yeah. They're a, they're a wonderful company. Uh, well, and I mean, it doesn't get any better than Asheville. Yeah. I mean, I, I live in Nashville and, and we j- actually just went to Asheville uh, two weekends ago, and like every time we go there, we're like, we need to move here. We love it here. Yeah, no, Asheville's a great place. You know, one of my, yeah, we, we love it here too. My wife is actually Ecuadorian, and we moved here about uh, seven, eight years ago now, and, and we absolutely love it here. Um, but one thing, it's, you know, we might be getting off topic slightly, but I think one of the challenges that we have as change makers, you know, people who want to who change and fix our, our food system and, and other, you know, broken aspects of our culture. Uh, I think we need to figure out ways to make these little pockets, these little islands of, um, like Asheville, uh, and Burlington, Vermont and places like that. We need to figure out ways to spread, uh, the ideas and the, the practices and the, you know, that we're, that we're succeeding with in these places. So, yeah, that's something that's on my agenda at some point, but then hopefully our U.S. program will be the the tip of the spear, right? And that's what we're we're gonna we're gonna work beyond Asheville. We're actually gonna go to counties, a couple counties away, where there's more need for the sorts of services that we, we're providing. I think that's a really great point, though. I think that um, with the invention of you know the internet and all this social stuff we have the ability to go out so far and extend ourselves so far, but really what we need to do is bring it back in and, and get back to basics and really create a community 
um, that is more local. So I love the, and, and one of the reasons that I, I love Asheville so much is we always go and we, we go to see the Biltmore. And I love the fact that that home, um, Vanderbilt built it at the turn of the century, and it was all about conservation. You know, he was a big believer in conserving the land, and he built, you know, while he had amassed wealth that most of us will never envision, but um, his property is built on sustainability. Yeah. You know, they had their own um, cattle and their own chickens, and they raised their own gardens, and like everything that went into the food system in that home was raised and bred and, and, um, cultured on that land. Yeah, no, it's, it, that, it was a really, um, that's a great it system. Is. Yeah, it is. I mean, this, you know, if you are, if you're familiar with permaculture, um, there's a lot of really great permaculture. I mean, Biltmore is not exactly permaculture, but I mean, they're definitely trying to create a self-sustained system. Um, but anyway, I think any of your listeners who are interested in, in creating, you know, home scale permaculture systems, um, that's, that's beyond the work that we're doing because of resource limitations with the people we work with. But I think people who have some resources, uh, you know, to create these sort of self-contained systems that, that not only provide lots of food, um, for the people who implement them, but also provide wildlife habitat and really serve, you know, to help restore, um, the, the, our, our whole, our whole, um, ecological system. So anyway, it's a, it's an interesting concept and there's, there's lots and lots of, um, they call them permaculture design courses that they're, they're, they're all in all over this region anyway, in the Southeast and also out in California and other places there's there, you can enroll in one of those classes. Or there's books about it too, but it's sort of something you need to learn hands-on, I think. Well, even small scale. I mean, even if you've got a balcony or a small outdoor space, it's very easy to start gardening. I mean, basil is a great herb to grow because it's easy to grow. And, and you know, even if you feel like you don't have a green thumb, it will make you feel successful. Yeah, absolutely. So I love that. What are, um, in your opinion, uh, for the listeners who are – um, listening today, some things that they can do, small or big, to create change. I, I think you actually just, you know, we were just discussing one, creating, growing some of your own food. And growing it, and, you know, don't be afraid. I mean, I think turning people's yards into gardens is a great way um, to not only grow healthy food that you know exactly where it came from and to reconnect to the land, but also just to, as a, to demonstrate. I mean, many of the ways, you know, one of the ways that we work in other countries is we, some of the, the first farmers and families that we work with, uh, those people become, they create, we call them demonstration farms. They just essentially, they do an excellent job on their piece of, uh, at their home, and then people see it, right? So people see it, and then they come and ask questions, and then it helps spread, it helps spread um, the work. So growing some of your own food and, and, and you know, do a nice little garden out in the front of your house um, get rid of some of your lawn. I think it's a great way to start. Uh, buying from farmers markets, uh, buying non-GMO products, you know. And then I think you know people underestimate the power of their own voices. So I think do, get engaged in in politics. Uh, you know, you don't have to be, you know, eat, sleep, and, and, and breathe it. But just sending, you know, signing up, signing petitions, and, and, si- and sending a letter to your 
to your state senator because they don't get a lot of you know get a lot of correspondence about issues that are you're concerned about um, food issues and other things and and you know writing emails and letters to to our federal uh, senators and our uh, you know state or U.S. rather uh, congressmen um, and senators uh, I think those are good ways we need to express ourselves and, and those are really good ways to do it so those for easy things that people can do. I think that those are them. You know, grow some of your own food, uh, buy from farmers markets, and and um, and then and then make your voice heard. Yeah, and I would add to that just simply being educated. Uh, a lot of people don't know what a GMO is. They don't know that it's being placed in their food, um, and just by simply buying a product without knowing what you're buying, you're funding a system that is broken. Like. Pay attention to the verified non-GMO so that you're supporting a system that does get rid of that the, the bad seed practices. Yeah, absolutely. And then you know when you when you do have to when you cannot buy from a local farmer who you know is growing you know non-GMO you know organic or at least you know healthy healthy food. Um, yeah, when you do need to go to the grocery store, do buy things that, that are do not contain GMOs. And unfortunately, the list of things that contain GMOs is growing rapidly as the more GMO products come online. Um, almost anything that contains sugar, uh, you know, I mean, I won't get into this in great detail, but yeah, because of sugar beets, anything that contains sugar that doesn't uh, say, you know, sugar cane on it, um, is, is almost certainly got some GMOs in it. And likewise, corn. Um, and soy, those are the three big ones. I mean, there's, there's others, but, the, you know, sugar, if you think about what in our grocery stores contains either soy, corn, or sugar, um, it's virtually everything, yeah, so. <laughs> everything. Yeah, so that's, they really got us there. So, and now, you know, one of the other things that people aren't aware of that um, they're rolling out um, GMO fodders, so the problem with that is that you know a lot of them it's going to be much more challenging when 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 it's one thing to have a food crop be a GMO crop those don't spread as easily as fodder do does but if you know GML elf, GMO alfalfa and things like that you know will grow wild quite easily so that's actually that's a big issue um, it's yeah cross cross contamination and and so g- getting meats. Um, from grazing animals that don't cont- that are you know clean is going to become increasingly difficult in the years ahead. Well, and luckily there is um, a website which is the non-verified GMO or verified non-GMO. Um, it's a website. They have over seventeen thousand products that have been verified. It's a nonprofit, and they you have to become certified to have the label on any product that you make that's non-GMO. So again, just going back to the education, just pay attention and become aware of what you are consuming because you're funding that system. Yes. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. You know, I think it's education. I'm glad you added that because it's a really critical piece of it. And people need to know what's in their food and they need to, in order to, um, you know, be responsible and Well, Chris, I want to thank you for being on the show today. I really appreciate it. I know you are extremely busy, so I feel honored that we were able to slice out this time today, uh, especially during the week of a holiday. Um, If people are interested in learning more about Groundswell or would like to uh, make a donation, where can they go? How can they find you? Uh, Yeah, you can find lots more information about Groundswell on our website, which is www groundswellinternational.org. Uh, that's the, the best place to go. 
learn more about us there. If you want to get in contact with me, you can write uh, info at groundswellinternational.org, and I can tell you more about our U.S. program um, and about anything else uh, that any listeners might want to know about us. Awesome. Well, Chris, again, thank you for being on the show today. I really appreciate it. You're welcome. This is great. I appreciate you having me on. All right. Thank you. It's no longer considered a thing of hippies and tree huggers professing about conservation. Our planet is in danger. Mother Earth has been brutalized by humans more in the last 100 years than in its entire existence. Our entire existence. It's now or never to get your head out of the sand. Take time to make a difference. Small changes make a big impact and education and awareness are key. As Chris said, learn to grow your own, buy local, and get involved. I want to thank you for listening today. I'm your host, Amanda, and I hope you've enjoyed this podcast as much as I did. If you would like more information on this show or have questions or comments, please email me at info at gatesinteriordesign.com. Please be sure to visit groundswellinternational.org. And if you are curious about GMOs, what they are, and how to avoid them, you can find more information on my website, gatesinteriordesign.com, or visit nongmoproject.org. I would also like to encourage you to visit SoTrueSeed.com, and that is so, that is S-O-W. You can look me up on Twitter, at The Amanda Gates, and if you like this podcast, leave a review and subscribe. Bye for now.